knew it. I said last week when we had 60-degree weather that maybe I shouldn't put away my winter clothes just yet. And lo and behold, the region is blanketed in snow and ice once again. It's the last gasp of February. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. Yet another sign that the local officials might need to tighten up their procedures a little bit when it comes to the handling of forfeiture funds. It's been a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. We'll reconnect with Ukrainian journalist Valery Garmash. First of all, uh, we are alive. We are still standing strong. And we'll hear more from our ongoing Times Union podcast about the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker. And you could hear that there was something, something going on. Maybe the light was on of of the van or whatever. You could hear there was something going on in the car. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com and our social channels this week. All right, back again are we with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top stories this week. We'll start with the latest news that a body has been found in the Mohawk River uh, in Schenectady. And that is giving everyone the vibe that it might be, but it hasn't been confirmed, that it might be the girl who went missing in November. What's the latest there? Yeah, um, a body spotted by a couple of fishermen on Wednesday afternoon along a section of the Mohawk River where police really, I mean, spent months looking for 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey who has been missing since late November, uh, just a a terrible story. And um, what we know now, and just we've got to say we're talking Thursday morning, is that a body was found. We do not know the gender. We don't know really anything else about it at this time because the police haven't put it out. But of course it is raising, and you're right to say vibe as opposed to hope or more likely dread that this might could provide an answer to um, to what happened to Samantha Humphrey. But um, obviously, uh, what we know for sure is that this this is a, a fatality and a body that came out of the river in a spot that was key to this one search. All right. Well, we will have more updates on that. So stick by timesunion.com um, as that develops, if we hear more from law enforcement on that. Let's move on to a story. That involves the Albany County Sheriff's Office. An employee there is accused of embezzling a large sum of money in federal funds. Can you tell us more about that story? Yeah, $68,000 to be exact. Um, John Cox, who was the head of the County Sheriff's Business Office, has been charged with grand larceny, five counts of forgery. This apparently came from the account that uh, that held 
federal forfeiture funds. Now, I should note that Steve Hughes, who did this story for us, has done yeoman's work looking into alleged misuse or uh, sketchy use, shall we say, of both state and federal forfeiture funds and or in the offices of Albany County Sheriff Craig Apple and Albany County District Attorney David Soares. David Soares's office is currently uh, paying back forfeiture funds that it uh, acknowledged were um, were not properly accounted for. They did not go back to the state addiction efforts as they were supposed to. Both of these cases identified by the county controller resulted in an audit by the feds, as one would expect. And uh, it would appear that the alleged embezzlement by Mr. Cox was turned up as a result of that audit. So um, very interesting stuff there. And uh, yet another sign that the local officials might need to tighten up their procedures a little bit when it comes to the handling of forfeiture funds. Indeed, lots going on there. All right, let's move on to a story um, that I found personally very moving this week. It was a it was a big story um, out of Albany Rural Cemetery. A Lakota girl is returning to her ancestral land. She's buried in Albany Rural Cemetery, but she's moving back to South Dakota. What what happened there this week? It is rare that we say there's big news out of a cemetery, but um, Paul Grandal who um, is pretty much a, a, a past expert on all things Albany Rural Cemetery, which is, of course, you know, one of the most beautiful and sprawling cemeteries in upstate. I think that's that's fair to say. You know, Paul has written a book, These Exalted Acres, about Albany Rural. And, you know, the, his latest column is uh, sort of the fruit of that study. And yeah, this is the case of Sophie Highdog, who was a 10-year-old girl who died of uh, tuberculosis in Albany in 1900, about 10 years into her life and after she was taken from her Sioux family in South Dakota, uh, you know, one of many, many Native children who were yanked from their indigenous families. In Sophie Highdog's case, she was sent to the very notorious uh, Indian school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, that was known, uh, like many of these institutions were, for serious abuse. And then uh, died in Albany, buried in Albany Rural. And thanks really to the efforts of Paula Lemire, who um, is uh, yet another scholar of Albany Rural. She is going to be repatriated in the spring, taken back to South Dakota. It, it, as you say, it's it's a completely touching piece that Paul wrote. Yes, and beautifully written. Highly recommend. Head over to timesunion.com to check out that story. All right, one last topic for today, and it involves food. If you've had a fish fry in the capital region, uh, they are apparently a very unique type of fish fry, and we were trying to get to the bottom of why and how. Uh, so what can you tell us about fish fry that you can get in the capital region? Yeah, Roche Schneider looked deep into the unique look and sh- the shape of the fish fry that is um, so popular in the capital region, especially around Lent. These businesses, uh, Ted's Fish Fry is, is one of the best known is uh, coming up for a a busy weekend as we uh, head into the Holy Week. 
And the amazing thing is that no one can kind of explain where these long, thin strips of white fish that are, you know, battered, fried, and then served on a hot dog bun comes from. That it it's one of those things that everybody everybody says it is what it is. You know, it's described by Jerry Papandrea, uh, who is a, a food critic on YouTube. He just says, I think it's just this accessible thing. And it's true. It's essentially like a fish fry hot dog, as, as it were. But you know, it looks like essentially it looks like a humongous fish French fry kind of. But um, <laughs> I, I got to say, Jess, I've lived in Albany for 23 years and I have never had I've eaten a lot of fish and chips, but I've never had like a fish fry from a fish fry joint. And I'm a lapsed Catholic. <laughs> yeah, so I was born here and have lived here for probably the majority of my life. And I don't understand it either, but it is delicious. And I'm kind of hungry now. And whenever it opens, I think I might go get one. So thanks for that. <laughs> no problem. All right, Casey, thanks so much. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. February 24th marks one year since Russian troops invaded Ukraine. A year ago, Russia launched a full-scale invasion that focused initially on the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, and regions east and southeast. By mid-March, Russia had seized a quarter of the country. But Ukrainians resisted. Over the last year, they've held off and pushed back Russian forces, retaking territory that Russians had attempted to annex. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden flew to Kyiv to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He announced that the U.S. would provide Ukraine $500 million in aid, in addition to heavy tanks that he promised last month. Last March, we connected with a Ukrainian journalist working in Slavyansk, a city in the embattled Donetsk region near the Russian border. At the time, Valery Garmash, who is the editor of the Slavyansk-based news website 6262.com.ua, wasn't sure if he would have enough food or power and internet to continue to operate. But he and his team of 14 journalists have persevered in telling stories from the front lines. Times Union editor Casey Seiler recently reconnected with Garmash over Zoom to catch up. Here's a portion of their conversation. So, I, uh, you know, the big question, of course, is with the, the one-year anniversary of, of the invasion, how would you kind of sum up? Yeah, I'll lie. <laughs> First of all, uh, we are alive, we are still standing strong, and uh, actually we broke the backbone of Russia, and uh, we are so united uh, to fight for our freedom and uh, fight for the territories, for Ukrainian territories. We still have very strong belief uh, that uh, our victory is coming, and we are there to protect our country. You know, we put President Biden's visit to Kyiv on the front page of Tuesday's paper. 
I think that probably every other paper in the country put it there as well. What did that visit mean uh, within Ukraine? Da, nu, nu, eu dumă șo, zahalite șo, prijaie prezidentul americii. So my personal opinion is that uh, this visit is not only uh, to show the big support that the United States uh, continues to provide our country, but it's more uh, to give the message uh, to Russia that uh, we are not left alone, Ukraine is not left alone, and all the uh, countries that support us, uh, around 50 countries uh, in the world, uh, they will continue this support. and that's uh, the main uh, the main message that uh, I think uh, comes out of this uh, very important visit both for our country and for our allies did you think a year ago that Ukraine would be in the position that it is in right now. I I can remember talking with you right after the invasion began, and it was a, a obviously a very tough conversation. But when you look back on it now, were you always confident that Ukraine would be would be able to hold on um, and persevere for as long as it as it has? Як людина, я звичайно сподівався на те, що ми вже First of all, as a citizen of my country, I uh, never had any doubts that we will stand strong and uh, we are gonna win. Uh, maybe a year ago, <clears throat> we didn't have a clear understanding how long it can last, uh, this war. Uh, and we probably didn't know uh, what will happen after one year after. Now we know that uh, we are still fighting and uh, it's still hard, but uh, Ukrainian nation is a very brave nation and we will never leave our territory, our country, we will protect it and we will fight for, for the freedoms and uh, for the freedoms that we have and we uh, used to have. No doubts that we will continue our fight. Of course, as a, um, a person, I was hoping that we can win faster, but it's a year uh, since the invasion and we are still fighting, but we will never, um, we will never mm, give up. Do you find that young journalists in Ukraine are energized and coming to the work of journalism as much now as, as they have in the past? In other words, what what has the the invasion and the events of the past year meant for journalism in in Ukraine? So, first of all, uh, at the beginning of the war, a lot of uh, young people, Ukrainian uh, citizens, they became fixers. And now uh, they started writing. So, having no journalism background, never uh, working in media, but now uh, they are more and more involved in this uh, information front. 
I always knew that a word is a very strong weapon, and we have our own front where we can do our best. Uh, and actually, uh, since the beginning of the war, uh, Ukrainian journalists uh, were sharing the information with international media, and that's how we were uh, getting the support from all over the world, because they heard what is happening in Ukraine through the eyes of uh, Ukrainian journalists. And uh, my friend, uh, who who is now in the army, who is fighting for our independence, uh, he once told me that you have your own front. This is your information front and you have to do your job there. What do journalists in Ukraine need? Well, I was asked the same question in Germany at my recent visit and uh, well, I don't know how to answer, but I will answer how I did in Germany. So, first of all, I was telling them how the uh, day of a journalist looks like in Ukraine now. So, uh, you wake up, means you are still alive. If there is an air raid siren, you go to the basement. Then, when it's over, you go out, you look if your city still stands, if you have the electricity and the internet, and if that's in place, you start writing your story or your news. And then, uh, if the electricity is still there, you will send it to your editor. And he has to edit and then send it to either newspaper or online. Uh, the editor has the same situation. He has to wake up, uh, look out, look around, to see how the situation is, if there is electricity and um, internet, and do his job. Uh, the main point is that if you are alive, if you survived, you have to continue what you're doing and what you do best. So what is needed now, uh, first of all, finance, because if you can pay salaries to a journalist, uh, they might leave, right? If you can buy equipment, they will not be able to perform to the best of their abilities. Uh, so finance, financial support is number one still uh, in Ukraine, uh, because all the journalists, uh, they do their best and they work not 100%, but 200% of their abilities. This might be an excessively optimistic question, but when all this is over, what do you think Ukraine will will look like? That's a great question, and uh, everybody thinks about uh, what will happen when uh, we win. Uh, when we are optimistic, of course, we think how we will celebrate our uh, victory day, how we will uh, remember uh, the heroes that gave their lives for our independence and our freedoms. Uh, but then reality comes, and uh, we understand that there are a lot of cities that are either fully uh, destroyed or partly destroyed, and we will need to uh, put a lot of effort and money in reconstructing our country. And uh, another thing will be how we uh, get back people who left, uh, those who were under occupation and who were forced uh, to leave or who were taken uh, to uh, rush out to other places and also the refugees who fled the country uh, to Europe 
So we have a lot of people that uh, we would like to have back. Uh, this is uh, one thing. And uh, then we will also think about a program to invite other refugees, not only Ukrainian refugees, but from other countries, because we think that the reconstructed Ukraine will be a very attractive country uh, for other people to come and live. So uh, we will have not enough uh, rest, but uh, as soon as we take a break, we have rest, we will continue to do this. That's all I have. Any anything else you want to you want to share? I would like uh, to express uh, one wish from myself. This is the same thing that I ask uh, my uh, foreign colleagues. Uh, remind people about what is happening in Ukraine, because every day we cost us a lot of uh, lives of our great uh, people. Uh, so, I understand that people are tired of what is happening in Ukraine, right, of the bad news, but still, you don't have to uh, remind them only about the visit of Biden to Ukraine, right, This is uh, which was covered everywhere, but from time to time, and try to do it on a regular basis, uh, remind that Ukraine is still uh, fighting for its independence and still uh, standing uh, strong because without uh, your support it becomes harder to fight for our freedom and we are fighting against the evil that is threatening the whole world. I can assure you that Ukraine will not fall out of the news pages of the Times Union anytime soon. Thank you. If you want to hear our conversations with Valery Garmash from last year, when the war was just beginning, visit timesunion.com slash podcast. You can find them in our archive from March and April of 2022. After the break, we'll hear another segment from our brand new Times Union podcast, Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. This podcast is supported by The Times Union, a newspaper of distinction winner by the Journalism Association of New York. Subscribe today to the Capital Region's award-winning news source at timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. We launched a brand new podcast in January. It's called Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. It explores the mysterious disappearance of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker. He vanished without a trace in 2007 from the Washington County village of Greenwich. His case was ruled a probable homicide, but no suspects were ever named. Our seven-part series delves into the life, disappearance, and 15-year search for Jalik. Here's a little bit of our sixth episode, which dropped this week. And just a warning, the subject matter may be disturbing to some, so please listen with care.
previously on Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. Four months after Jalik disappeared, a letter arrived at the Times Union. Copies of this letter showed up in newsroom mailboxes around the region, too. It was anonymous, postmarked from Westchester County. That's three hours south of Greenwich. The letter was typed. It had typos and spelling errors. The grammar was inconsistent. It read, quote, Jalik still alive. Needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up, Route 40, Post 30. He's okay, no fake. He says, ask his mama and papa, who are the macaroni family? My cat named Diamond. Why does Franti yell fire? Don't try to look, we are not there. There are many elements of this letter that were scrutinized, but one stood out in particular for police. This letter says Jalik was allegedly picked up on Route 40, Post 30, the night that he disappeared. It's the corner of Route 40 and Hegemon Bridge Road. That's exactly where you turn. I, I want yep. her to know that this, if you're coming from Latham, this is where you turn, this is where we turn today, Jessica, to go into Greenwich. Okay. This is the turn. Gotcha. To go to Hill Street. Wendy and I are standing near Post Marker 30 on Route 40 near Hegemon Bridge Road. It's a three-way intersection where people frequently pull over, mostly to check their phones and directions. You can barely see the postmarker on the telephone pole. In the summertime, it's somewhat obscured by vegetation. You have to go right up to it to see the metallic numbers. Okay, so this is marker 30. See this pole here? Yep. It has a 30 on it. This, this is the where he says... I realize I've made this turn at least two or three times on my way back and forth to Greenwich for this podcast. I didn't even realize it was that marker 30. The spot feels very much like the official entrance to the village, like you know you're finally there when you make this turn. It bridges the gap between the seemingly endless rural country roads and quaint village neighborhoods. And to me personally, it was a sign that I would finally come upon a much-needed gas station. We came back and it was after dark because it was pulling in and seeing somebody over there, but not knowing who it was. And that was the day before that was came the missing. That, so that, that was, was the night. The night. But I just remember there was a van going towards town. That's exactly where you turn. This is Sally. At least that's what we're calling her. She doesn't want to use her real name. She lives on the outskirts of Greenwich, near Post Marker 30. Back in the early days of the investigation, she told Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell that she saw something as she was returning to her house the night of November 1st, 2007. She says it looked like a van. To go to Hill Street. So it pulled in and it was parked like by where the pole was. And I remember coming in and you could hear that there was something, something going on. Maybe the light was on of the van or whatever. You could hear there was something going on in the car. When we got home, the dog, Max, he was a big, doofy brown dog, but he never barked. He wasn't a barker. And he barked most of that night. I kept looking out and then that 
fan was probably there for a period of time, 20 minutes, half an hour, something that was aware of, oh, it's still out there. The anonymous letter sent in February of 2008 alleges that Jalik was picked up by an individual or group of individuals at Postmarker 30. Police say Jalik's adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, told them he thought Jalik could have run away to join a gang in Albany. It's a theory that police doubt. I don't think there was any gangs coming up the road. And then we kind of laughed about, well, maybe the gangs were coming up. That's what the dog was barking at. Or maybe Jalik was there, you know? So. Police say Stephen Kerr gave them several theories about where he believed Jalik was, too, in those early days of the investigation. One was that he ran away to join a gang. Another was that he ran away to reunite with his birth family in Albany. Stephen Kerr told the Times Union in 2008 that he believed Jalik ran away to join the black community in one of the region's three metro areas, Albany, Schenectady, or Troy. Retired state police investigator Tom Aiken confirmed that Stephen Kerr also gave them a theory that Jalik may have been kidnapped by a religious cult that has an enclave outside of Greenwich. Another of his theories was that Jalik was kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. Police say they've thoroughly investigated all of these possibilities. Tom Aiken and George Bell have both said on record that they did not believe any of them are credible. By this time, four months after Jalik disappeared, Police dubbed Stephen Kerr a person of interest in the case. The only person of interest in the case. That means they thought he had information that could help solve the case, or that they thought there was a possibility that he was involved somehow in his son's disappearance. Either way, the term carries no legal weight. But police were not shy in the following months about telling reporters they were investigating every detail Stephen gave them about what he says happened the night of November 1st. Stephen Kerr has never been charged with anything. He remains a person of interest in the case to this day. The final episode of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, drops Tuesday morning. That's February 28th. You can listen and subscribe to the whole seven-episode series wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler for his contributions to this episode. <laughs>